Good morning again. Good to be together this morning. We've been praying for you as you drove in this morning, and hopefully it was at least mildly without incident. But it's Minnesota, and this is what we put up with so that we can get to mosquito season. So it's worth it. The end is in sight. <laughs> well, as Josh referenced, we're, we're coming into Holy Week, as it's called in the church calendar. Today is Palm Sunday, which means that this is the inauguration of Holy Week, when Jesus entered for the last time into Jerusalem. In fulfillment of prophecy, he rides in on the colt of a donkey, and we see all of these things happen during this week. We see the upper room discourse You read about that in John 15 to 17. We see him establish and inaugurate the Lord's Supper. We see his prayer and his agony in the garden, his betrayal, his trial, his conviction, his crucifixion. All of these things kick off, as it were, today. And so in the church calendar, we acknowledge this as the start of the most significant week in the history of the world. And it is significant, not because of all the little peripheral things that are going on around it, but because of the person of Jesus Christ, as Josh has helpfully drawn our attention to already. That it is because of Jesus and his suffering and his passion and his death that you and I can have life. And so what a way to commemorate the death of our Savior. So I encourage you to use this week as an opportunity for extended reflection or reading or meditation on what Christ has done. It is a wonderful time of year to do that. Next Sunday, when we come together for Easter morning, the service is going to start perhaps a little bit differently than you're used to on Easter Sunday. And we are going to start by making a connection back to what has already happened on Good Friday and starting the morning very similar to how the disciples started that morning. They woke up not knowing that Jesus was raised from the dead. They were still in mourning. They were still in sorrow until Mary and the other women go to the tomb and the angel meets them there and they receive the news that Jesus has risen and boom, their lives are changed. So we're going to start on that more reflective note, just as the disciples did. And then when we hear the news of the resurrection, we will celebrate all that that means for us. So I really hope you can be here. It's going to be a really special morning for us as a church. And so for this morning, though, we continue our study in the book of Malachi. We're going to pick up in the last verse of chapter 2, and we will get through verse 5 of chapter 3. And we have seen over the past six months or so that we've been in the Minor Prophets, this, this characteristic of prophetic writing. And that is that there is oftentimes more than one right application of a text, right? So oftentimes we read in the Prophets and there is immediate context. There is what the original hearers would have heard and how they would have interpreted it. And then... This is the kind of characteristic of prophetic writing. There is a future reality. There is a future application. And so what I want to do today is we're going to take these verses and we're going to deal with them first in the immediate context and figure out what's going on. And then I want to dial out just a little bit so we get a more broad picture. And we're going to look at this passage Christologically. You know what that word means? It means in light of Jesus Christ's life and ministry. We're going to look at it through that lens because I think we can gain some real 
confidence and hope because of how Jesus fulfills what we're seeing here in the text. So that's the plan. And so let's open our Bibles, if you haven't already, to Malachi chapter 2. And we'll pick up in this last verse and read through chapter 3, verse 5. So Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Father, we come once again Hungry and needing to be fed, Lord, we come thirsty and needing to be satisfied with living water. And so I ask that through the preaching of your word, through the hearing of the word, but mostly through the work of your Holy Spirit, would you help us to understand what you desire for us? There's some real hard implications here for us as we're going to see, Lord, about bringing our own sin before you and being ready to deal with those things. And so, Father, please soften our hearts. Make us receptive this morning to the word, not just in a sort of academic or objective sense, but God, press this in to our hearts and so that we are changed and helped and encouraged. Jesus, you said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. And I freely admit that this morning. None of us can do anything apart from you and the work of your spirit. So please come and uh, superintend our time this morning. We thank you, Lord, for your word and for the opportunity to study. Commit ourselves to you now in Christ's name. Amen. Now as we begin this next section in Malachi, we're going to see the same literary structure as we've seen many times already in this book. And that is where uh, the people make a statement or God makes a statement, and the people give a rebuttal to that statement, and they ask a question kind of in denial or in questioning, well, is that really true? And then God answers with another statement. We've seen it before. We're going to see it again as we move further into the book of Malachi. And now the situation here is that the people, we read right away in this uh, last verse of chapter 2, they have wearied the Lord with their words. That word wearied is the same word as translated burdened, in other places, it has this sense of just kind of exasperation, like, ugh, again, 
We come with this. And they have done this to the Lord. They've aggravated God with their careless and thoughtless words. The people have complained against God. And their main complaint is that he is not acting justly. You can pick that up in verse 17. In their mind, God is late in keeping his promise to exercise justice, to do the right thing, to avenge their enemies. And you remember just a few verses earlier, we talked about this last week, God had just chastised the people for their faithlessness. Do you remember that? How they were participating in the marriage to foreign women and the daughters of foreign gods. They were practicing faithlessness with one another. No one was keeping their word. They were getting divorced so they could pursue selfish things. All of these things, God says, that's not right. We need to deal with this. And yet now, they look around and everybody else is doing that and they seem to be doing just fine. Right? Well, they're getting divorced. They're doing what they want. They're practicing faithlessness and they don't seem to be getting in trouble. And so they look to God and they say, hey, what's the deal? There's inconsistency here. There's not justice. You just told us we'd get in trouble if we do this. And look, everyone else is doing it. (laughs) Ever heard that one? Well, everyone else is doing it, right? So the main complaint here is that they are drawing attention to the fact that in their estimation, God has failed to do what he has said he was going to do. He says, I'm going to come. I'm going to return. I'm going to take care of your enemies. I'm going to avenge you. I'm going to stand up for you. And they say, hey, wait a minute. How is this true? Look at everybody else is doing this and we're getting in trouble for doing the same thing. Now in verse 17, this is the conclusion that they arrive at and this is the wrong conclusion. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Now that word is really intentional, I think. There's there's a sarcastic tone to this verse 17 when it says God delights in them. This was meant to get a reaction. This is evoking a reaction from the Lord. It's kind of like when a child uses their parents' own words against them. I hate it when that happens. Okay, but that's kind of what's going on. And that word delight from chapter 1, verse 10, because of the sins of the people, God said, I don't take any pleasure in your sacrifices. I don't take any pleasure. Same word. I don't delight in what you're doing because you have sinned against me. So the people now remembering this, they're like, okay, let's see how this fits on you. You must delight now in these sinful people who are acting wickedly. This is the wrong assumption that they arrive at. In all of this complaining and misinterpretation and misinformation leads the people to ask the question then, where is the God of justice? See that in the very end of verse 17? Where is the God of justice? Now this particular question is an attack against God's very character and his attributes. Throughout all of redemptive history, God has communicated himself to be a God of righteousness and justice. The people would even sing about this. If you remember Psalm 103, the Lord executes justice and righteousness for all who are oppressed. That was in their songbook. And yet the people have the audacity to say, where is the God of justice? You get this, it's just kind of creepy, this sense of what these people are doing and they're addressing God who himself is just and they're saying, where is he? What is he doing? Why isn't he showing up to deal with my problem? Because I'm mad that other people are doing well. This is, this is the complaint 
that the people are bringing against the Lord. And they ask this question, you know, where is the God of justice? Not because they are genuinely trying to get an answer. They're not really wondering. They're making a statement in the form of a question. Right? They're not saying, boy, it would really be helpful if we understood what's going on here. No, they're poking. They're trying to draw attention to the fact that they think God has failed to do what he has said he is going to do. Now, God sees this, and he hears this, and of course, it wearies him. Not literally, God doesn't get tired, but it's this idea of just being burdened and the repetition of hearing these things over and over and over again. Again, every parent can relate with this in some ways. But it's interesting that God doesn't immediately give them just a direct answer because he knows they are not asking from a position of, well, I just want to find out. So he doesn't say, oh, you're wondering what I'm doing? Oh, that's great. Let me explain to you all the inner workings of my character and why I'm doing this. He doesn't say that because he knows their question is disingenuous. They're, they're not serious about this. Instead, God uses this as an opportunity to remind his people of something, that if he comes back to deal with all of the sin and the things going on around them, he will also deal with them. God is indiscriminate in his justice, meaning that if he returns and deals with the, this, this thing that they're crying out to God about, the unfaithfulness of everyone around them, he will also deal with them. So in a sense, they would get what they asked for, but they probably wouldn't get what they wanted. Has that ever happened to anybody? Ever cry out to God to, to fix that problem over there? And then it ends up that we're the ones who need changing. We're the ones who need restoration. We'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to the end. But as we read in the New Testament, God shows no partiality. Therefore, he will return, as we'll see in verse 5. He'll return in justice, but it's going to affect everybody. No one is insulated from this, as it were. Now, as we move into chapter 3, we're going to see how exactly God plans to deal with this situation, this apparent injustice, this complaint from his people. And I want to spend most of our time on the first verse because we need to just figure out who's being talked about here. There's a lot of first-person personal pronouns going on, a lot of he's, and we got to figure out who all are the players here. So look at verse 1 of chapter 3, and we're going to look at this twice. Like I said, once in immediate context, once we'll dial out a bit. But read verse 1 with me again. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So who are all these players here? And we can start right at the beginning of the verse. Behold, I send. Okay, that's God. That's Yahweh, God the Father talking. I send my messenger. That's another player, right? That's someone distinct from God who will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek. Now who's that? It's another, right? That's probably another one coming out here. We'll come to his temple. We have the messenger of the covenant. Behold, he is coming. And then we're back to, says the Lord of hosts. There's all of these people being referenced here in this verse. And this is why we need to spend a little bit of time just figuring out what's going on. So let's deal first with this immediate context. I think as the original hearers hear this, and as it is written, the phrase, 
my messenger is more than just a play on words. If you remember from the first verse of the first chapter, we established that the name Malachi means my messenger. That's what the name means. Malachi means my messenger. So I think at least in some regard, when God says, behold, I send my messenger to you, I think it's talking about the ministry of Malachi in the immediate context. As he comes to the people to prepare, as it were, the way for the Lord. And how does he prepare them? By giving them the word of God. By saying, come back to the Lord. Return to me. Understand your own sinfulness. Deal with that. Repent and draw back to the Lord. This is the ministry of Malachi as he calls the people to return to God so that God can return to them. It's a ministry of calling meaning that he calls the people to return to the Lord. And we should also notice that at this time in redemptive history, the temple is the place where God dwells. Okay? To, to the Jewish people, to the Israelite people, that is the center of the dwelling place of God. And whenever things were going kind of wonky in the nation of Israel, whenever they felt abandoned or when they were under oppression or taken off into exile or whatever the case was, they would assume that the presence of God had left. Well, he must not be here anymore. So when he talks about the Lord whom you seek suddenly coming back to the temple, he is talking about the return of God's presence to his people. And this has been the theme all throughout these three books, right? Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. They all talk about the return of God to his people. And of course, there are immediate contexts there, but there is also then this prophetic aspect that Ezekiel and Joel talk about that one day God will dwell with each of his people personally through the work of the Holy Spirit. So there's all of this meaning layered in here in the return of God's presence. We're going to see this again as we get further into Malachi. The return of God's presence is both anticipated by the people and it's also promised by God. And they're living in this sort of tension, this time between the promise that has been made when God says, behold, I'm going to return to you and the actual fulfillment of that. So they're looking, God has promised, and this is where we find ourselves. Now the word suddenly, in verse 1, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, that communicates the imminence of this. It could happen at any time, right? And so the point, I think, in Malachi saying this and in God communicating this is that the people ought not to just kind of <sighs> yawn and, well, yeah, maybe someday we'll get around to repentance and coming back to the Lord, but for now, we're just really engaged with this. I got this new chariot that I need to polish the wheels on and got this new set of whatever sportsy things they did back then. God is coming, and the message of Malachi is it could be now. He's coming. He's, it's imminent. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And so there's this kind of urgency, I think, in this message that don't dilly-dally around. Don't act like this is way far off in the future, but be prepared. Get yourself right with God. And we can say the same thing to one another this morning. So God is going to return to the temple and dwell once again with his people. But as we read on into verses 2 and 4, we see that there's something that must be done before the Lord comes back. There is a purifying work 
that has to happen before the sacrifice of the people can be acceptable to God. You see that as we read verses 2 through 4. And this work of purifying is what God has tasked Malachi to do. Okay, in part. Now I know there's probably many ways to interpret this, but I'm saying that Malachi functions as the one preparing the people for the return of God, giving them the word of God. That's how he does this. And it seems that the main emphasis of this cleansing power, this cleansing that's going to happen is for the priests, right? The, the messenger of the covenant is going to come and just like someone who refines gold and silver, he is going to purify the sons of Levi. This is referring to the Levitical priests, the one who offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. Now we saw last week <clears throat> that the priests had not done a good job, right? They had neglected their duties. They did not offer true instruction. Righteousness was not in their mouth. They had allowed the people to stray and to go aside from the commandment of the God. And so what God says is, I'm sending someone to you who's going to purify you. And this refining work that the Lord is going to do is going to make it possible for the offerings to finally be accepted in contrast to what we read in chapter 1, that the offerings were not accepted, they were not pleasing to God, there is a purifying work that will happen so that these can finally be acceptable to the Lord. And in response to the question in 2.17, where is the God of justice? Chapter 3, verse 5 answers, right? When God says, okay, I'm going to return to you. I'm going to return in judgment. Now, this is not necessarily judgment to them. God is saying, okay, I'm going to return, and I'm going to deal with all of this stuff that you're complaining about, all of the injustice that you see around you. He calls out sorcerers, referring to spiritual unfaithfulness. He calls out adulterers, referring to sexual sin. He calls out those who do not use their power for good, but instead oppress and extort those who are under their care or under their responsibility. The God of justice is coming, Malachi says, and he will deal with all of these things and set it right. But what the people don't realize, as I said a moment ago, is that when God returns to them, all of this judgment, all of this setting right is also going to apply to them. It's not just the people out there, but God is going to purify his own people. So in the immediate context, going back to verse 1 of chapter 3, I think Malachi functions, at least in some part, as the messenger of the Lord declaring this message to the people of repentance. Repent of your sin. Return to the Lord. He is preparing the way so that God can come back. But what happens if we dial back just a little bit and look at this in light of the future ministry of Christ? If we consider these words about the preparation and the purification and all of this that's happening in verse 1 through 4 at least of chapter 3. What do we see if we dial back? And this is where we're going to look at this now Christologically, meaning in light of the ministry of Jesus. As we read in the New Testament about the beginning of Jesus' ministry, so this would be Matthew 3, Luke 
3, I think Mark 1, these all detail the beginnings of Jesus' ministry, we see that God indeed sent somebody to prepare the way before he comes. You know who that guy was? John the Baptist, right? The, the New Testament identifies John the Baptist in accordance with Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40 as the one who comes to prepare the way for the Lord. John came, we read in Mark 1, preaching a message of baptism and repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A very similar message as Malachi was preaching, right? Return to God. Repent of your sin. He's coming. The Lord is coming. Repent. Get ready. Same message. Two messengers, right? John and Malachi. Now, in this context, as we see the Lord whom you seek, and as we see the messenger of the covenant, both in verse 1 of chapter 3, I think both of those refer to Jesus. I think they're the same person as we look at this in light of Christ. And I'll tell you why I think this. As we look back at Malachi 3, it is the messenger of the covenant who purifies the people. Okay, do you see that? Is it verse 3 when it says, He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold. Who is the he? Well, if we use just basic grammar and antecedent, the previous one that goes back to is the messenger of the covenant. He is the one who is going to purify the people. And I think Christ is that messenger of the covenant, the one who communicates covenant realities to God's people and purifies them just as was promised in Malachi 3. But how does this happen? How did it happen in Malachi's time? How did, how did Malachi, in a sense, purify the people? Because you know that fire and soap are just analogies, right? Right? There was not literally a fire pit or a huge thing of soap, right? This is physical imagery to communicate spiritual reality. So how were the people purified? By the word of God. Malachi delivers the word of God. He says, this is what God expects from you. Here is the law of God. Come back, come back, come back to the word of God. And the word is what purifies the people. Well, is it any different in Jesus' ministry? What do we read in John 1? In the beginning was, say it, the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, referring to Jesus Christ. So, God's people, New Covenant era, church age, are still purified by the Word. But it is Jesus Christ who purifies not with fire, not with soap, but with his own blood. He purifies his people by his own sacrifice. Now, we know that Jesus does this because of what we read in the New Testament, but I want to read you two texts that I think are convincing to say, yep, this is, this is what's going on. Jesus is both the messenger of the covenant and the Lord who is returning to the temple. And I want to show you two things, one from Hebrews, one from Luke. So in Hebrews 9.13, I'm going to read just a couple verses. You can turn there or just listen. And I want you to listen for language of purification cleansing, and for language of covenant. So that's the two things we got going here, right? Messenger of the covenant and the purification. So Hebrews 9, starting in verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that's referring to old covenant, right? Verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that blood purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, verse 15, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Purification through his blood, mediatorial work of the new covenant. Blood, covenant. Purification, covenant. You see that? Or how about when Jesus establishes the Lord's Supper in Luke 22? What does he tell his disciples? What what do we say every week when we come to the table? This cup, which is poured out for you, Jesus said, is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is the one who establishes and mediates new covenant realities to his people. He is the one who purifies his people as the word. And he is the one who cleanses them by his own blood. 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all our sins. It's strange to think of blood as a cleansing agent, isn't it? You ever try to clean blood off of stuff? When I worked as a custodian at the school, that was the number one hardest thing to clean up. It stains. It wrecks. But when it comes to the blood of the new covenant, through Jesus Christ, who offered himself through the eternal spirit, blood cleanses from sin. What a reality. What a reality. Jesus Christ is the messenger of the covenant. He delivers the message of God to his people through the word and he purifies through blood. So we see this immediate context. We see Malachi functioning at least in part as the one delivering the word of God. We see the Christological context of Jesus now being the one who delivers the word. He is the word to God's people and purifies them with his blood. And I want to close with just one more implication from the text. Going back to chapter 2, verse 17, where we first started this morning, when the people of God cry for justice, right? Where is the God of justice? When they make these statements like, oh, God must approve of what's going on. He must love it. He must delight in it. When they make these kinds of things, I think they're guilty of doing something that we do oftentimes, and that is we want God to come and deal with everybody else's problem, ignoring the fact that there is definitely something that needs to be dealt with in our heart first. I mean, don't we do this? I do this. You pray that, oh Lord, convict so-and-so of their selfishness and their, their pride and their arrogance and whatever else deal with them and all the while in our own hearts aren't we harboring unforgiveness bitterness jealousy even hatred at times nothing has changed sure this was 500 bc but i tell you what the human heart is still the same and when we ignore the fact that there are things in our own heart to be dealt with and we just say god deal with them It's the same thing. We're basically asking, are you just? (laughs) Prove it. You might get what you asked for, but you're not going to get what you want. So I just, I want to encourage us, I mean, especially as we're coming to the table here in a couple minutes. I want to encourage us 
in the discipline of self-examination. You know, Jesus referred to this when he talked about the log and the speck in the eye. Remember this? It's really easy to point out everybody else's faults. It's really easy to see everyone else's shortcomings and the way that they fail to keep the law of God or the commandment or the principle or whatever. It's a lot harder sometimes to turn that mirror around and look at ourselves and say, oh, boy, there's some dirt in there that needs to be cleansed out. There's some, there's some things that need to be washed from my own heart. So I just want to encourage you. We're going to have time here as the elements are passed don't waste this opportunity. Open your heart to God. Bring the things that you have been harboring and holding on to, the bitterness, the resentment, the things that prevent you from true communion and fellowship with God. Lay it down. It's not a burden that we were meant to carry. Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree Peter tells us that we, having died to sin, might live to righteousness. It's by his wounds that we are healed. So allow the blood of Jesus to wash all of that garbage away, knowing that God is faithful to forgive our sin when we bring it to him. And you can have assurance of his grace and his pardon today. So let's not be guilty of the same things here of calling for everybody else to be dealt with and ignoring the fact that we must bring our sin to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this good reminder that you've given us now this morning. I thank you that you are a God of justice, that we do not have to question your ability or your intentions. We don't have to wonder if you are really going to do what you've said you're going to do. Maybe one of the differences, Father, between us and these people in Malachi is they looked forward to the day when you would finally come and the Lord would return and establish justice and righteousness. And we now, on this side of the cross, can look back that Jesus did come. He did lay down his life He shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. So I pray that we wouldn't forget that. And I pray, Lord, that you would work now in these moments to convict our hearts of sin. We all struggle with things. We all wrestle with selfishness and arrogance and pride and bitterness and resentment and Anger and tempers and all these things that just flare back up in our life. But I'm so thankful, Lord, for what Brian emphasized, that you are the one who keeps us. We cannot sin our way out of your hand. And I pray, God, that you would remind us of that today. Help us to keep short accounts with you. Open our eyes so that we can rightly judge ourselves and confess our sin to you, Lord, so that we can help others follow after you. So Lord, thank you for this reminder and I pray that we would use this time well, that we would confess our sin, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive our sin and that you really will, by the blood of Christ, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a blessing. And we thank you for the new covenant. Work this into our hearts, Father.
I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.